Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is kind of a ringer. New York chef Andrew Carmelini of La Conda Verde, Lafayette, Bar Primi, Little Park, and my single favorite place to eat in North America, the Dutch. He's also an old friend with a single movie credit. About 20 years ago, he conceived the dishes for a film called Simply Irresistible. It totally counts, and I roped him into doing a show. Andrew picked The Blues Brothers, the 1980 John Landis comedy that brought John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd's novelty Saturday Night Live band to the big screen in the most insane way imaginable, as an all-star demolition derby that places Jake and Elwood Blues at the center of a breakneck chase to get their beloved band back together and save their childhood orphanage. It's a secret musical, too, featuring what might be the strongest lineup of soul performers ever assembled for a motion picture. And given the general level of chaos and busyness in the movie, I think recording this episode in a test kitchen above Lafayette made a lot of sense. Also, we taped this uh, back in January, less than a week after David Bowie died. That stuff's staying in. This is someone else's movie. For my birthday two years ago, Gwen, my wife's uh, friend, got me a signed copy of the script of Blues Brothers. Oh, cool. In a, it was like a promotional kind of like, you know, thing they, they, were, they were putting out before yeah. the movie. Signed by uh, Aykroyd, Landis? Uh, I, think it's, I think it's Belushi and Aykroyd. Oh, wow. Uh, and it's like a, you know, pr- typed out script inside like a Blues Brothers like folder thing with like a little, I, don't, I have no idea. Oh, like a, like a program thing? Like a little, it's like, a, like a little program Eight thing. Eight and a half like by elevens with the press kit? It's like a press kit type of thing, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, signed. That's amazing. I'm going to guess you saw this at a fairly young age and saw it a bunch of times, but what was your first exposure? Blues Brothers, it was, uh, what, it was like 1980, right? Yeah, summer 1980. So uh, I was nine years old. And um, I mean, because I, I started thinking about this the other day since we were talking about it, and it was such a big deal for us. It's so ingrained in our psyche of me and my clique of, of degenerates that... You know, we basically recess in my parochial school, St. Columkill, in Cleveland, in, in, in South Cleveland, is that what you did, if you were cool, um, and even if you weren't cool, is that there was a huge game of something called blood ball, and the recess was on a black asphalt parking lot. Blood ball basically was a combination between soccer, rugby, and no hold barred kind of like do whatever football okay and one side of the parking lot if you got the ball over the you know the grass that was a point and get the ball on the other side but it was it was tackle it was it was rough um but everybody played it like all 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 guys played it and if you were on the cool team the name of the cool team was the blues brothers okay and the name of the other team they didn't even have another there was like not even a name for the other team because they were just always the challengers alright so it's like the Globetrotters and the Washington Generals nobody remembers the Generals exactly they just there for the show they were just there for the show and that was made up whoever wanted to challenge the Blues, the Blues Brothers would show up for the game okay you know so naturally like the Blues Brothers was made up of like you know the cool kids 
the dudes, the girls wanted to, like, they had crushes on, and, like, the jock fellows. And the other team was, you know, the misfits and the stoners and the rockers and the, you know... And I sometimes would be on both teams. Or I was like, going to say, would, you would, would kind of go between both I would kind of go, you know, like, between both, both of them. Um, Depends what kind of like mood, but always like it was that. That's that's how that's how what a, what a important thing that was to us in South Cleveland. So at that point, Belushi and Ackroyd had been playing the characters for a while. Had the movie the movie had already come out, and this was well, probably part of that world. probably we didn't since we were in fourth grade, mm-hmm. and it was already. It was we probably well we saw the movie, but we probably I don't remember the character on Saturday Night Live when it came out because I didn't watch Saturday Night Live when I was in third or fourth grade. Right. I'm thinking more in terms of the albums. I mean, the, they'd released a couple of records by that point. So yeah, they released a couple of records. But I, 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 our first exposure was the movie. Was the movie, yeah. Yeah, hands down, it was the movie. And so, like, how did it play? I didn't... I don't think I saw it... I was 12 when it came out, so I don't, and I don't think I saw it right away. I know it took me a year or so to catch up to it. So how did it play for a nine-year-old? Like, what was your experience of seeing it? I mean, my uncle took me to see the Blues Brothers because of the music, mm-hmm. you know, and he, you know, my dad was a was country, bluegrass, and blues. My uncle was, you know, they were. It was a more expanded musical universe in like his house a little yeah. bit so there was more R&B more kind of proggy Frank Zappa type stuff and a lot of guys that were in that band were Frank Zappa musicians yeah that is kind of bizarre like that it that Zappa's people end up producing the thing that always starts me out with the Blues Brothers is that it is a novelty band that is still one of like the great soul sidemen lineups it's it's the movie is this excuse to get all these incredible legends into a, into a film. And it's some of the, like, uh, I was talking about this with somebody about Aretha Franklin and how her stuff just isn't available. Uh, there's that, that 1974 concert film that's been suppressed yet again. We didn't get it at TIFF. Uh, it was announced and then pulled after the first press screening, and I missed the press screening. And, and the only footage of Franklin in her prime really is the stuff in this movie. Right. Because uh, everything else is badly shot video or something. And sure, just, sure, it isn't sure. cinematic enough. And you... You see this movie, and even if you go for Ackroyd and Belushi, you come out like loving Ray Charles and James Brown and Franklin. And it's interesting because it's such a, you know, Steve, Steve Cropper, Steve, Steve Cropper, Donald Duck Dunn, like those guys are Stax Records, mm-hmm. and you know it's interesting. Stax, it was the first, it was like one of the first integrated before Muscle Shoals. Stax was the first integrated record label right where you had the house band was made up you know of these white players and these African American you know soul R&B guys yeah yeah and that were the sound of that era and it's awesome to see them like in that role yeah in a giant choreographed musical that also has a million car crashes and like it really is a four quadrant picture there's something for everybody the only thing it kind of cuts short on is the romance but that just gives you that amazing scene with Belushi and Carrie Fisher right so it's still pretty good uh, I, I introduced a screening in November for now we have this free uh, free, mon- free movie Monday thing we do once a month at the Royal Cinema and uh, we picked the Blues Brothers and it was just 
the energy was so great and there were people who'd seen it a dozen times and there were people who'd never seen it at all and like I envy them their first experience of seeing that movie especially now like 35 years later when the songs are standards all over again I mean everybody knew the songs that people were singing but that many the Moocher number now it just feels like a time machine has opened sure. and, and that's what supposedly that's what Landis wanted when he cuts from shabby Cat Calloway to, to slick tuxedo Cat Calloway is to show you what this would have been like but in the, again, in the context of a movie with a million cars exploding and Nazis and uh, and Dan Aykroyd doing that thing he does where he just barfs out incredible layered um, text as dialogue, just the, the way he lists off what they've done to the blues movie, why, why he bought the cop car, cop sure, shots, sure, cop sure. rates, cop. It's, uh, it's interesting, you know, like how he's like... That's 1980, mm-hmm. and 1980 was a bad year, generally. I mean, I knew that when I was nine. Yeah. It was, the economy was bad. My dad didn't work much. Our car, which my dad put 275,000 miles on, was a 1970... We drove it off the lot in 1975. Okay. It's a 1975 Brown uh, Impala. Okay. Which is close to the car that the... But the Blues Brothers car is so they're Bluesmobile. You know, so the Bluesmobile is, um, you know, and aesthetically after two hundred seventy-five thousand miles, <laughs> it was a very similar kind of like look to it. Yeah, um, I think we called it the Brownsmobile too. Actually, <laughs> yeah, at one at one point. Um, so this is a film that resonated with the whole family. Maybe not my mom, but you know, <laughs> but uh, definitely the boys. Right. Yeah. And so, as a kid, um, experiencing those characters for the first time, like, did it? Did it? kind of shape your idea of Belushi and Edward. did you know who they were at the time because they really were only they were doing R-rated stuff like Animal House and and I guess they were both in 1941 but nobody remembers them yeah probably probably not I just we kind of just knew them as the Blues Brothers you know and just mm-hmm. after that discovery afterwards like you know who they were and like the SNL stuff I didn't watch SNL and I don't remember in the, in the 70s or the early 80s being like allowed to right uh, to watch SNL, it was probably like later when I was like watching old episodes and like you know uh, catching up on that. Uh, but I was always I would stay up late. But I was always interested in like yeah yeah I would, I would just, we had a second a, th- a third bathroom and if you left that this technique where you could I could I would open the door before I went to sleep I would open the door to the third bathroom because it overlooked the living room mm-hmm. and you could see the TV through the mirror. <laughs> And so I would go to sleep, but the door would be open, and then I'd go, you know, go to sleep, and my parents would still be watching TV, and I could sneak to my parents' bedroom into, it was called my mom's bathroom, because it was like a little bit nicer and like right. uh, white design and everything, and watch through the mirror. But I was mostly like interested in seeing the end of the Bond films, because it was always like the the girl part so that right. was like very intriguing to me but I don't remember watching SNL through the mirror everybody has a story about finding ways to watch television after hours like the, the kids today they they don't watch to a schedule they won't ever know what it felt like to sort of they're not gonna they're not figure gonna, it out you have to MacGyver your way to, to television there's a that mysterious time after 8 o'clock mm-hmm. when things are supposed to be a little grown, grown up but they really weren't I guess the Bond movies were I mean the Bond movies were and Saturday Night Live and mm-hmm. yeah. yeah it's it's such a hazy part of my own childhood because in 1980 like I was I I would have been 11 so I was reading a lot I was a heavy movie geek by then already but I didn't get to see the Blues Brothers I missed that one I had to catch up to it later I don't think I saw it in the theater until the 90s but um, 
and video just does no justice. Like at the time, the pan and scan VHS version that I watched like half a dozen times in the space of three days because sure. that's how you had to. Have, that's how long you have it. Um, and I, I figure that's how most people our age found it. Like if they didn't, if they didn't catch it in the theater. So once you see it uh, and incorporate it into the murder ball, death ball game, uh, what else happens? Where, where do you? When did you next encounter it? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I just, I, I, I really, I, we started talking about what movie to see, and I, probably the movie I have seen the most is The Blues Brothers. Okay. Uh, just because the music's great, and it was a big part of our childhood, and I mean, we, then we had, you know, I, my, my, I think my first band in high school, like early high school, mm-hmm. probably like even like eighth grade, ninth grade, we covered a lot of those songs. Okay. So you... It was very important for me to have a horn section. <laughs> That's great. Because in my dream band, when I was, you know, in my early teens, before you know, you could really plug it in and thrash it out, it was really important that I had a horn section. My own Tom Bones Balone. Right. Uh, the Tower of Power. You know, that's 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 what I wanted. But I went to the I went to set the first taping the, the the Colbert show and they had uh, the special special guests with the with the band at Tom Bones Malone there. Oh wow! And uh, you know I, I felt maybe I was the only person that got excited about that. I was like Tom Bones. Does he still have it? Can he still play? Oh Tom, yeah, he still plays on it. No, I mean, does he st- like what was it like to watch him perform? Did he? Did, was it just part of the band? Well, the Blues Brothers like one part of that. I, I remember that, like the Zappa, the Zappa, his Zappa performances were the thing that I remember. Oh, okay, remember the most. So the only time I saw Zappa, um, which was his last tour, the Them or Us tour. So this is 1987. He was in the horn section then, and. They played a four-hour set, no lie, Jesus. and they played. They played uh, as a joke. They played "Stairway to Heaven" for like the fourth encore. <laughs> it's kind of like a super geek inside joke yeah. if you're a musician. Normally, you know, where the guitar solo would come in, they decided to do that on horns, okay. which was like super cool. And uh, yeah, Tom Bones Malone. Important stuff if you grew up in that time. Yeah, it is. And it's it's that thing where, like, I knew... I was more Motown than Stax just because of what was available to me. Sure. But Stax is just as electric. And, and in some ways, I think I'm more fond of it now um, just because it is it was rarer. And it turns up in... in um, through Kate's family, I've discovered a lot of Northern Soul, which is this sort of weird... Um, like it has Northern Soul is the, the English tradition of soul music but it's from everywhere it's just it's just like glommed into a huge Katamari Damacy ball uh-huh. that just picked up everything so like Frankie Valley's The Night is a huge one for them um, which barely anybody knows here because it's such a weird song um, it's the one with, you, you know what it's the one with the weird mm-hmm. um, kind of falsetto bass line thing where it almost fights itself electronically there's this electric guitar thing that yells at the voice and it's such a strange song uh, but there's a lot of stacks in there and and a lot of that to me the first time I really heard it was the Blues Brothers was the cover versions and I, st- I will still argue that their version of Expressway to Your Heart is just like the best one because it's got so much more love in the production like the, the thing that comes back to me watching the movie is John Belushi, who is 
unquestionably like fucked up half time. He is not always conscious in those long shots. He, they just propped him up and shot a scene sure, for sure. some stuff. He is just spinning out in some moments of that shoot. But the choreography, the specifics, the performance, he nails it. He is so alive and electric and, and accurate in that weird straight man thing he does where he completely, it's what made him perfect for the Dragnet movie, right? He just dials himself right down to nothing except for the physicality. And there are movements, even when they're just walking, when like when Elwood's being walked out through the prison in that beginning, that incredible yeah, silent prologue. Uh, to the light coming through the prison, yeah. kind of like uh, the prison gate and the shot of him standing in front of the car. Yeah. Dun. Exactly. I forget every time just how powerful that is and how long the buildup is. Because when we, when we showed it in November, I introduced it and I'm like, I was telling people how much energy it had and how it grabs you right away, and then it starts and it's like, shit, I forgot, nothing happens for two minutes. And they're all just but if you're, you know, going, if, if you're, if you're, if you grew up Catholic and you grew up in the Midwest and you have a brother and you were like musicians, like all four of those things that we were, yeah. like it's even more compounded, you know, because it, uh, you know, there's all those, and you, you're like very middle class, yeah. you know, you don't have a lot of money, Rust Belt stuff. Yeah, it's like even for me it was a uh, so the penguin rings true the morality stuff in there all of that oh the penguin like and it's funny because I watched that recently with uh, Gwen my wife and um, she's like do you ever get hit by a nun I was like well define hit I've never gotten hit by a nun but I have gotten paddled by a deacon and she's like what does that mean <laughs> I was like it's like paddling was a thing in my with the paddle with the proper with the paddle, like a big wooden yeah. paddle it was a, it was a thing and you got it was the principal he was the principal of the school and he was the only one that delivered corporal punishment Jesus and this was the late 70s early 80s where 19, that just happened all the time 1976 to 1983 or 4 okay I suddenly yeah. feel a lot better about having gone to a Jewish day school as a kid because we got guilted on all the time but there was never any physical threat I survived oh there was one point where I had the the record paddles for the school, which was like 48. I'll never forget it. Um, In a single. No, no, single, no my, my career at... Your my, my eight years, first first year through through first grade through eighth grade. So that's eight a year. Yeah. No, six a year. Wait. I can't. I think fourth grade was a strong year for paddles. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's long since phased out, I assume. But I would assume so. Let's yeah. hope so, anyway. But so the, the knuckle wrapping in the in the movie is not something you personally encountered. No, it was the paddle. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's I the casual violence in the movie, I'm gonna go back to the movie now because it's too disturbing to actually go into the whole parochial school <laughs> world. Uh, since I just watched Spotlight again last week too. Uh, um, yeah. good movie. Really, really, really good movie. Um, I did not experience that. Though. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. I don't want to open that door if I don't have to. Uh, it's yeah, we're joking about molestation. I can cut this part. <laughs> um, the uh, yeah, the, the the world of the Blues Brothers. I mean, the Blues Brothers themselves exist in a sort of a heightened reality, obviously, where everything like musical sequences break out and people are just prepared to throw rocket launchers at each other for fun, and, and the Illinois Nazis are lurking at the back. But the way the film opens, with like almost a hyper-realistic treatment, it's it's Michael Bay filmmaking now. Like it's it's slick commercial filmmaking right up until they throw it out. But it's really really artful. And watching it again with an audience is just like I 
forgot just how much is in this movie. There are huge chunks of it that feel new to me every time because I've focused on the musical numbers or sure. like just the whole build-up to the James Brown number. That's delightful. Like, there's so much... Oh, yeah, the opening sequence opening of the movie to James Brown is, like, some amazing storytelling. Mm-hmm. So, and you knew who these guys were, so you're sort of just leaning in and experiencing it that way. Trivia yeah. fact. Yeah, yeah. Shaka Khan is in the... That's is right. In the, uh, She's in the dance sequence. In the dance sequence. There is so much talent. And but those, so but those, 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 those movies, you know, the... I guess there was, there was uh, you know, you would know this more than me, but it seems like that style movie got, got they always get made, you know, in not economically great times where there's a massive cast... Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like it's a wide, wide world. Oh, mad, 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 sorry, mad, 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 mad world type like movies with the mega cast and you know all the different cameos. I guess that that happens. That happened a lot maybe four or five years ago. It's happening less now. Yeah, with with the with those movies, those are sort of interwoven narratives, and they the same. Like it keeps checking in on different characters. Blues Brothers is more like a cameo movie where you just get these star special guest moments where sure. they just burst up and disappear again. Um, yeah, in the, in the seventies, the actually weirdly, the Blues Brothers is a perfect analog to this because in the seventies they did that with disaster movies. Yeah, sure. You know, like all those movies with and Henry Fonda as the president, <laughs> and you had the box of people's faces on the poster beside Adventure Time for you know the swarm. Uh, the swarm. The that swarm. was a good one. Yeah. Meteor. What was the spider movie? There was the spider movie. Um, there's a giant spider invasion. Kingdom of the Spiders. The one with Shatner. Spiders. Yeah. Yeah. That has a great final shot. That one screwed me up as a child. Where they come out, the last handful of survivors emerges, and the whole town is webs and it just pulls out yeah yeah and the movie king ends of, king of the spiders that's king right, of, yeah. yeah and you just sit there and go oh movies can actually be nihilistic and horrifying but when the blues brothers came along i guess the last one before that would have been spielberg's 90, 1941 where with belushi and Aykroyd, a million different things are going on spielberg so, also a cameo that's right and frank oz and, frank oz. and landis i think it was the first time landis really started doing that putting directors in everything because uh, he does it in Three Amigos and he does it in Spies Like Us, famously. And Terry Gilliam shows up in a Russian hat at one point. Oh, really? Yeah. And Trading cool. Places has at least two, I think, walk-ons from filmmakers. But um, in, in The Blues Brothers, I think Frank Oz is like the first voice. Uh, he's the first person who speaks. You know, one condom soiled. Uh, that's Miss Piggy, the the guy behind the desk. And, uh, I was going to say, I, remember, I was trying to, I guess... Yeah. Uh, I guess it is the uh, first person. One pair of sunglasses, one hat, black. <laughs> Just this incredible disdain that he's going through. But um, but yeah, but uh, the Blues Brothers is the analog to the um, to the disaster movie because it is a disaster movie. I mean, it's, right. it's this epic car wreck chase thing, which is also you know that's another like you know those it has it. There's epic car chases and car wrecks, which is you know this. 70s. If you're a, if you're a boy growing up in the 70s, sure. your ultimate movie. Yeah, I mean, it came right out of the Smokey and the Bandit movies, and what was the Hopper. Hazard was on the air. Hop- Hooper. 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 That's right. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Hopper. Hopper. Hopper was the sitcom, right? There was a sitcom Hopper. Maybe right. Yeah. Like a clinging guy or something like that. I remember. But Hooper, yeah, Hooper. Um, God, there was that was the the golden age of practical effects too. Like, I mean, not until like Fury Road, right, brings it back around again to proper cars being destroyed for real and the Furious movies I suppose also do it but it's something yeah when you're a teenage kid that never goes away the idea that you can just watch stuff go real fast (laughs) I remember watching Vanishing Point I must have been in my 20s when I first saw it and thought oh this was embraced as this 
epic, yeah, okay, the car is really beautiful, but nothing is happening. And then you see Hooper or Blues Brothers where there's just kinetic energy and it's just so much fun. The car movies, yeah. Remember the car? The movie, movie? the horror movie. Oh, the car. Horror, yeah. horror, horror movie, the car. Newly reissued on Blu ray, just so we can catch up. Oh, really? Yeah. With uh, Brolin, I think. James Brolin? James Brolin, yeah. yeah. He plays the uh, sheriff. I have it at home and I keep looking at it yeah. and thinking, this can't be as bad as I remember. Uh, and it was it was scary as hell. I was I remember very scary. So it worked on you. So okay, yeah. did you see it in theater, television? I probably definitely saw it on uh, on television. Okay, I'm yeah. just wondering. I saw it. I've seen it twice. I guess once on TV, just sort of paying attention to it a little bit, and the second time all the way through when it first came out on DVD and thinking, this is very silly. But I'm old now, so right, was it doesn't work on me. I'm invulnerable. Convoy, that's another movie of the Peckin- era that's uh, Sam in the Peckin- same kind of, uh, you know, mm-hmm. car chasing, cars. Yeah. Girls, I guess sense of adventure. There must have been. to the man, running from the law, yeah. all that stuff. I guess it's like it, it evolved out of Billy Jack, maybe? That kind of rebel spirit. That's what, like, the new Hollywood renaissance of the late 60s and early 70s that brought us Nicholson and, and Easy Rider, I guess. Sure. It sort of coalesced into car chase movies and. And, yeah, films about attitude, films about rebels going real fast in the desert because, A, it's cheap to shoot that. Right. And, B, people really responded to it. I guess... Hey, I'll watch Faster Pussycat again, no problem. That's that's <laughs> a fascinating film, too. But it is a really weird spirit that's like the last gasp of the American hippie ethic at the same time, right? I mean, it's environmentally destructive and kind of dickish. But it is the freedom thing, like the idea that this is the last place you can go in your car by yourself on the road. Sure. And even the Blues Brothers are what they're doing what they're doing for a really good cause. They're just breaking every long book to do it. Uh, and it isn't until the Nazis show up that they have someone like the the film sort of clarifies its moral perspective. It's like, sure. yeah, these guys are jerks, but they're not dicks. <laughs> and then of course you have Henry Gibson, uh, the the leader of the Illinois Nazis, sure. who, is, who is just this marvelous comic actor who, who is working with Robert Altman all the time and somehow turns up in this movie as the apparently he was the sweetest man in the world and here he is playing a monster what was his name was there I get his name Henry Gibson Henry the, Gibson little pale white guy no Gibson was um, Gibson was like a, a this sort of sly comic actor uh, he's in Nashville he's in oh, that's right he was in Nashville that's right. yeah so many like, of Altman's films and he looks like the I don't know if I just said this or thought it but he looks like the older version of Teller from Penn and Teller there's a sort of softness sure, yeah. to his face and a smile, a kindness in his eyes, which makes him perfect for the Illinois Nazi leader because he's doing his absolute best to deliver all his dialogue reasonably. Like, he's, he seems to think he's... A, I mean, obviously he thinks he's right about whatever he's saying, but he's really quite calm and measured and, and then things just get worse and worse and worse for him uh, because the audience wants to see him punished because we want to see him lose his cool and it never quite happens. I've always loved that little performance and just the fact that he really does keep an even keel throughout the entire film as things get worse and worse and worse. Right, like right. Even when he's mad, he's... Even when he's in the car is falling from the thing, he yeah. just has, has a calmness to his Yeah, face. it's like Wile E. Coyote falling, off the, uh, <laughs> falling into, the, into thin air. Uh, so, yeah, you find this movie, you see this movie, and then later... What, what, the thing that I love about movies like this is that you start discovering the people involved because the casts are so big and there's sure. so much going on. It's like the Harry Potter movies are a gateway to British screen acting because everybody's in them. Right. But with the Blues Brothers, it's all joy. Like, you, you get to discover Belushi, you get to discover Ackroyd. I mean, Ghostbusters would come along a few years later. Sure. And, 
he'd suddenly be everywhere. Music, I mean, yeah, but back and, to the music thing. Music. If you're not like exposed to that, and and you have the you have the internet, you can go down the rabbit hole pretty easy. Yeah, God, but you can now. Like when when we saw it, there wasn't one. There was no. You had you were lucky enough to have somebody who had the collection, but I had to go. I had the soundtrack. I had a couple of Blues Brothers albums, but it took a while to find everything else. Although I mean, it did lead me sideways towards Chess Records and the rhythm and blues stuff from the '40s and '50s, and the and there's so much in it. There's so much history, decades of musical history, all caught up there. And now, yeah, you now can, you can watch that. And you can just yeah, but you, you had to just you had to go out and discover it. Yeah, I was half an hour from a decent record store, at least, maybe more, when I saw it the first time. It was just yeah, we I, I had to go to the east side to go to like the good record store that wasn't I don't know it was a, we had. Peaches was the name of the record store. I remember part Peaches. Of, was our, our yeah. part of town. And then, but if you wanted, like, the good record store that had, like, the deep cuts and, like, the, you know... I mean, if you wanted... I mean, if you wanted anything good, you had to go to, the, like, the funky record store. Mm-hmm. You know, if you wanted... If you wanted that, like, th- picture disc of um, uh, Exodus, right. you had to go, had to go to, like, the funky music store. Yeah. There were there were superstores in Toronto when I was a kid, which was great. There was a, the two big ones, Sam the Record Man and A and A Records, were right on right at Young Street in Dundas, and they were they were the mecca. Now there's one HMV there, and it's not bad, but it is an HMV. You know, they're, sure. they're slowly moving away from music and into shirts and cups and orphan black mugs and things like that. It's just no way to live. Um, That's why it's cool to go to the west, you know on the west coast. There's a lot more of that around. You know, sure, you can go into you can have a legitimately proper afternoon and go to a non-hipster arcade and go into a proper record store. Santa Monica? San Francisco? Like, where are we talking? Direct Seattle. They're going to want to know. Seattle, Portland. Oh, that part of it. Yeah, mostly, yeah. I've never been to Seattle or Portland. I've got to keep doing it. have to find a way to go out there. Um, Because L.A. has music culture, but everybody's such a jerk about it. Like, everybody's everybody's a gatekeeper. Everybody has secrets and anyway, I love Amoeba music and I love wandering around in there but that's the only place I can go and feel like I'm not being pushed away somehow like Amoeba music is way more inviting in Los Angeles but everything sure. else is about the scene right um, and in San Francisco you, you've got Amoeba and the Berkeley one and, and a, the hate is just full of weird little shops that have little treasures uh, but yeah and New York I mean I was just in other music the other day and, right. and bought the Bowie album and felt simultaneously awful and that I missed it because now it just looks like I'm I mean it just came out came out two days before his death I didn't get the chance it didn't show up in Canada I feel like I'm a poser for buying it but uh, and and I, I noticed that you've got it the music running it's all Bowie all the time uh, at this at this yeah point. we're doing one week all the restaurants all Bowie all the time yeah, yeah. I mean this his apartment's down the street I know I know so Did he, you know well, we saw him around the neighborhood, like you know, you know, here and there, and mm-hmm. uh, but it's interesting, you know, the Bowie thing, because um, it's you know, the not, one part not, of music that not, doesn't line up with the not, not yeah, not, not the sidetrack, but uh, yeah, we were all very sad about it, and we couldn't, I mean, we all couldn't figure out why we were so more sad than usual. Yeah, um, yeah, same way. I we all feel the same way, and I, I think, like, my theory is that he, like, he was everything. He was everything. He was he was glam rock. He was rock rock. He was punk almost. Like it all comes from there. 
uh, except for soul and R&B, which pre-existed him. Sure. But he fused those two. Like, he made them work. Yeah, it was, it was, what do you call it, the plastic soul mm-hmm. uh, era of Bowie, right? Yeah. yeah. Everything he did was important to someone. Like, there's no, there's no wasted time. He did everything he wanted to do without compromise. But it never felt like that. It just felt like an organic expression of whatever he wanted to do. And there's joy. There's so much joy. Like, even I should have been... Uh, okay, so he died on Sunday night. I was driving the dog to the vet Monday morning and listening to the Sound and Vision box set, and I forgot the fucking line in Space Oddity where he says, tell my wife I love her very much, and I broke, <clears throat> I lost it in the car. I almost had to pull over. Uh, and I didn't, like, I had, I had, I knew he was, I knew he died on Sunday night. I was up at two in the morning when the news broke. I had hours to digest this, and it just shattered me. But by Thursday night, when we went to the Dutch for dinner, the music was fun again. It was right. enjoyable. There's like it doesn't let you mourn. It won't let you mourn. My favorite thing I read was the Iggy Pop piece in the New York Times. Because mm-hmm. um, he he wrote it was probably like a ten paragraph just you know piece, and he told this he just the story he told that when he would um, you know the two albums that he produced Iggy's first two albums he when he went solo they visited Bowie wanted to visit his mom and dad because. Mm-hmm. You know, Iggy grew up in a crappy part of Detroit, yeah. like no money, and his mom and dad lived in a trailer. And Bowie wanted to meet his mom and dad, and so they went to. He tells a story about yeah. bringing David Bowie to the trailer, and you know his dad saying, "Thank you so much for helping my you know son out, and uh, you know it's so great that you're helping him out." And Iggy's saying, "The only thing you could think of was his dad stop embarrassing me in front of David Bowie." <laughs> <laughs> and this was like 1970, whatever. It's yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. Everybody, like everybody, knew what he was. There was right. no like, there was no, there's no antipathy. Nobody's like. There are a couple of younger people who are trying to make the statement that oh, he wasn't important to me. I don't know who he was. A, a friend of mine who's younger, um, when Alan Rickman died on Thursday morning, when that news broke, he said that hit him harder because he was younger and he was a diehard kid, and Alan Rickman was like a god. And sure. He had the Harry Potter movies, and it was all part of his continuity and I said okay but Bowie like if Bowie is the entire like he's the reason everything sounds like it does now you just don't fully appreciate that until you listen to his catalog so I just I'm gonna just throw all the CDs we were at we went we were at his last we saw his last two New York concerts oh when was that 2004 okay he did two shows that year one at Jones Beach and one at MSG how were they I assume good. They were great. Yeah, well, we, went to, we went to the second one, you know. So yeah, I never saw him live. It's yeah, it's another regret. But yeah, there's no, there is no intersection as far as I can tell. There's sort of a nodding acknowledgement between Bowie and and, and the the music of the Blues Brothers, like that specific type of music. But unless there's a cover that I've never heard, which I kind of hope there is now, because then I get to discover it. I don't think there's much of a connection. No, but not. Um, the. Oh, yeah. Uh, the other question I wanted to ask, because you worked on a film that is, like, virtually forgotten, and is uh, justly forgotten, and I don't think anyone can blame you for any of it, uh, the one with the magic crab, uh, with a little hat on. And um, what was the experience, like, what were you expecting, and uh, for, for in terms of film work, based on movies like the, the Blues Brothers gives one the sense that movies are giant machines, whirling pieces going all the time I think it's it's a it's such a strange monster 
for what it is because you get the sense that watching it that at any moment the budget is going to explode or they're going to call cut and strike the sets before they're finished like the, the whole thing feels breathless even the quiet scenes like they're rushing to get it done um, Akron supposedly said that cocaine was built into the budget somewhere <laughs> probably sure. through the soundtrack side just to keep Belushi going but the sense of, of real risk and real danger um, is present and, and I think that's what like that's where Landis's greatest skill was at that time he was making movies like Animal House and, and Blues Brothers and even ne- the next one American World from London that feel really really risky even when they're big studio productions um, there is a sense of avant-garde danger happening. I mean, the Blues Brothers on paper, I would assume is unfilmable, and he somehow made it work. Like, how do you even structure, you storyboard the crap out of everything, but how do you even decide, oh, and at this point, I want a car to go into a mall because I'm pretty sure we've never seen that before. And someone else can say, there's a reason we've never seen that before, and he still made it happen, and nobody got hurt, and it it actually is amazing in the film. Um, So, based on movies that have to be run like a military campaign, what was your experience of working? I mean, did you do all your stuff before, during, after? When did you? Um, well, with that movie, you know, the... the and the, was it called Simply Irresistible to start with? Was it always called that? No, it was a fast... The whole thing was, like, mega fascinating to me. And it was, you know, I was uh, 28 at the time, mm-hmm. 29 at the time, and definitely the most money I've ever made in the shortest period of time with the least amount of work was... That is Hollywood was, for uh, was you know, at, you know, at that. And, uh, the, you know, the director came to me and he said he wanted to make, and this is why I got really excited about it and agreed to do it is because he wanted to make the American version of Tempopo. Okay. Which is not what that movie is. No, not at all. You know, so it's like, <laughs> that doesn't it was, make it's, it's, it's amazing to see, you know, to, to hear that, that conversation to see like that whole process was like fascinated, yeah. you know, to me because I was like invested in it, but only as an employee, right. you know, giving kind of my opinion about it. And his, you know, that the, the idea was we have the script and we want to make it as believable as possible that she's a chef and we want you to take a look at the dishes and give them kind of an aphrodisiacal quality to it and, uh, you know, do your thing. So I had to present, you know, take these dishes they had in the script, but did not sound very good at all and uh, change them and present them to everybody. And so I went to their apartment with... Uh, the director and producer and uh, the screenwriter who I did not know at the time was the director's wife because no one gave me that piece of information and uh, there was like the I know a bunch of people from the production and present my dishes and I was really proud of them they were like you know if you were going to do like a super sexy refined aphrodisiac menu like I nailed it (laughs) and the wife was very upset that we were changing her dishes inside the script. Oh, so she had laid out what she wanted. Yes, yeah. that specifically. And there was a little bit of a. There was a little bit of a. There were some heated words that were on. I was like, "Oh my god, what did I just get myself into?" <laughs> um, but it was. It was. It was. Yeah, it was interesting. And then the production of it was done. You know, in a trailer underneath the Long Island Expressway. Okay. Um, with like no air conditioning or proper kitchen or. Um, everything and it was like it was it was fascinating yeah there was a little bit of uh, work with Michelle on how to make her look like a chef mm-hmm. um, but I did that and I thought that there was going to be this whole other budding career in Hollywood for me yeah. you know I was like you know Andrew Carmelini culinary consultant to the stars I was like convinced I was like moving to LA baby <laughs> right uh, but uh, the work dried up after that yes well we you know 
I don't think anyone, like I said, I don't think anyone can fault your work in the film. And she does, like, physically, that that was convincing. It was just everything else about the movie that made it just uh, very... I mean, I saw it, and I don't think I knew at the time that you were involved. Uh, I think it was one of those things where I was still... I was emailing my reviews around to friends and here and there, and when Gwen got it, she just went... She, she responded by saying... Oh, um, I don't think we've seen that. And Andrew worked on that. I'm like, oh, that's that's awkward. But yeah, it's it's so weird. It's so fascinating to watch a movie that just goes sideways like that. Because right from the beginning, it just it stumbles and it never course corrects. But but they still the the, the direct the director still netted four million bucks off it. Mm. It's a corrupt and miserable system. But you did okay too, because you you weren't blackballed. But it was the original. The original name of the the name of the script was Vanilla Fog. That's right. I did yeah. remember that. That was the original name of the script, which also makes no sense now in the film. Well, there was a little bit. There was some fog action that happened yeah. here and there, and it was like they're trying to turn in a scent, and it was also kind of like a window into the uh, pre-movie kind of like psychological hype game, because there was an interview before. Uh, interview before the name of the you know they changed the name they released yeah it was made, it, I don't know it was on Letterman or it was like one of the night sign shows where she like referenced Villain Fog for like completely something else like right. it was kind of interesting it was an interesting process to see I would think yeah I mean I, I've been on sets a couple of times but I've never been part of a production on that level where you've been you are part of it like your work is is part of this giant thing and the work still works but I mean it worked out you, things worked out okay for you it just the Hollywood. But there's been a bunch of chefs, you know, since then have done a bunch of stuff. You know, like Thomas Kelly did Ratatouille, and yeah. I think Batali's been used for like a couple things. Yeah, Batali and someone else. There were two people involved in this. The Adam, uh, the the it's called Burnt now. It's the Bradley Cooper. Oh movie. yeah, Burnt. Burnt. Yeah. yeah. Um, which I was kind of pissed he didn't ask me because uh, he comes to Lacanda all the time and he's very good friends with my Cooper. partner. No, so. it's great. Um, it's not the movie is not his fault. I'll put it that way. I actually haven't seen it yet because I have a hard time watching like food movies like yeah. that about chefs. Well, you won't like this one because this is directly counter to your own personal philosophy, which is don't be an asshole. Right. Uh, which is also my personal philosophy. And so within five minutes, I was thinking, oh, yeah, it, this is a movie where they have fallen in. And I don't think Cooper believes this himself. But the writer, Stephen Knight, who's a pretty smart guy, um, still bought into the idea that if you are gifted, it justifies anything you do. And like I get the idea of the film people coming out with this because there are plenty of directors who are martinets and assholes and, and that's how they get their movies made and sure. it, that carries over. But in the, the whole chef thing, it's like, he's yelling at people, he's abusing people, he's an asshole. Yeah. And I know that's well, real. That's, but that's true. There are a lot of chefs and pricks. Yeah. No question. But you don't have to be. Like, no, you, you don't have to You be. prove this on a regular basis. Yeah. That it's New generation is a little bit more, more toned down. Yeah. Like the, the New York generation, but good. But if the movie buys into it very much, and I'm not, I'm, I realize now it's going to sound like I'm leading you into making a statement, but it's not Cooper's fault. He's playing the role really, really well. But it's one of those things where it's just like, oh, you, like, within five minutes, it's like, oh, you, you think this, and then I'm stuck with it for 90 minutes. And then in the end, it's like, you really ought to fail. I think this guy should fail. He's chasing his vaunted third Michelin star, and it's sure. like, I don't want him to get one. That seems like I should want that. I should, should I should be rooting for this guy, but meh. Well, a massive ego really helps. I would think. And if yeah, and if you don't have a massive ego and willing to like put the team through hell and put in, it's it's yeah, it's it's yeah, it helps. Yeah, and um, I get it. I mean, 
you wouldn't just just as with filmmaking, just as with, with what I do. Uh, if you don't think your opinion matters or your talent is important enough, you're not gonna. Why would you? Why would you do this at all? Like, what sure. would draw you to this incredibly competitive, uh, emotionally fraught, highly vulnerable position, or industry, or job? But yeah, you don't have to be a dick about it. You just don't. Yeah. So my culinary movie consulting uh, career started and ended with that film. Okay. But I don't know, and I, I, I wonder if the if I think might have been the first culinary culinary credit movie. Yeah, I was trying to think of them. There's there was a bunch that followed, but they were all kind of running in the wake of like Water for Chocolate and things like that, where food porn became a thing. Sure. And Tampopo probably is the first example of that. Sure. Um, maybe not in half weeks. Yeah, there was that scene with the fridge. Maybe Tampopo was before man. Yeah, no, I'm just thinking like yeah. the American, the studio chasing it. Babette's Feast, yeah, like there was all Babette's Feast, like that. yeah, yeah, eighty eight, maybe eighty seven. Um, but yeah, well, it's it's just. It's good that you got that experience because you, it let me get this from you, which is which was great. And then I will close with the always the, the, the and I'll close with the same question I always close with, which is how, if at all, has the movie influenced you? Has has the Blues Brothers ever come back for you? Has it influenced your work? Is there anything you stole from it, even personally borrowed or, or used as an attitude? Like, where is it in your life? You know, I mean, I think Blues Brothers. Have been, yeah, it's, I think it's. I mean, there was the music thing was, was huge. I think Blues Brothers probably introduced me to Zappa, even though there's no Zappa involved right. because of those connections with the musicians. And uh, you know, that's uh, you know, then in, you know, then that's the discovery with like Bella Bartok and Stravinsky and kind of all this like high concept, you know, music beyond like great R and B and all this stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's definitely like uh, in you know, it's an aspirational movie, right? It's yeah. you know, it's a, it's a trying to like climb out of middle class, if you will. Mm-hmm. Kind of like it's it's got some you know. I think all that's yeah, big big influence. We still talk about it. You know, I talk to my friends when I'm growing up, and we it's, it still is a reference. Right. We so will still go, we will still go like line for line. It's a fixed point in your lives. Yeah. Like it's something you can always come back to. Do you? Which version of it do you have? Do you the iTunes, Blu-ray, DVD? Which like do you have a bunch? Uh, of it's on it's on iTunes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I always wonder about that too. Like, how do people keep the thing? Because so many people will say like, oh, the, I have the Criterion edition of this, or I, I, I still. I mean, there's it. definitely like a VHS tape in my parents' attic somewhere hanging out with it, but yeah, it's at home on VHS. I mean, on iTunes. It's good. It's, it's with you forever. That's <laughs> nice. My thanks to Andrew Carmelini whose film credit, Simply Irresistible, can be found on DVD and somehow Blu-ray from Anchor Bay Entertainment. You can also find him on Twitter at Andre Carmelini, which is Andrew Carmelini without the W, and you can find him at his restaurants, which will soon include Luca in Brooklyn's William Vale Hotel. You can find the Blues Brothers on DVD and Blu-ray from Universal Studios Home Entertainment and on iTunes and Google Play. Check out the extended edition if you're so inclined. It's got more music, which is, you know, reason enough. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. Uh, this week's call sign is... Hit it. Thanks for listening. I'm afraid you just too darn loud.